The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WNKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WNKV. And now your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where this week, as every week, folks just like you are being put on the path to financial independence through real estate investing by us. And today is question and answer week, which means that there's no planned topic. It's just pretty much all about what you want to talk about here at Real Life Real Estate Investing. And the numbers to call with your questions about any topic related to real life real estate are 772-9658 here in the greater Cincinnati area. If you're listening from outside the area, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send us an email by going to askvina.com. Real life real estate investing Radio, realliferealestateradio.com is our fan site for those of you who want to be kept abreast of all of the latest happenings here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can go there and post questions, you can post topic or guest suggestions, or you can download any of 100 past shows. Again, that's Real Life Real Estate Radio and... Uh, you will, of course, need to be a fan or be a, a Facebook subscriber in order to uh, join that page, since it is, in fact, a uh, Facebook page. But uh, please join us there as a fan. We are up towards a thousand fans right now. And giving Mike the excuse once again to pull out the fanfare, one of his favorite things to do other than juggling on the radio which i kid you not he was doing just a moment ago and i'm sure you all enjoyed his juggling exhibition enormously obviously we need to (laughs) obviously we need to go live on the air here we need to like have like a simulcast of the radio show so that you can see all the juggling and general fooling around that goes on here during the uh, real life real estate radio show again our numbers here today for question and answer week are 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 and you can call anytime during the program today to get your questions answered whatever those might be um, going to some questions that we received via our website at, uh, at uh, askvina.com, uh, I have a couple of questions that came in late during last week's show, and I uh, went ahead and sent them forward to our guest, Ben Pargman, uh, who was nice enough to answer them for me. Uh, Mariana from Columbus, Ohio says, I'm listening in right now, and my question is regarding working with real estate agents. Real estate agents can do short short sales themselves. How do you manage to convince them to let you work the short sale 
and how do you arrange their compensation and in what amount? Ben's answer is, yes, the real estate agent can do the short sale themselves, but they should not focus their time. They, they should focus their time on finding buyers and not sitting on hold with the lender for hours each day. Our team has in-house negotiators who do that all day. You convince the agent by walking them through the deal and how working with an investor will not only help their clients avoid facing foreclosure, but also put a commission check in their pocket. Commissions vary, but an average commission on a straight purchase that would be from the seller to you, Mariana, is 3%. And on a sale where the seller is selling to you who's selling to an end buyer then reports that the average commission is around seven percent so thank you very much for your question mariana if you have questions for real life real estate send it to us at askvina.com or give us a call at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 uh second question came in um without a name on the bottom so i don't know who this was from uh, two questions. What is the best way to submit paperwork to banks such as, and name of a well-known large national lender, who seem to always lose the paperwork, and is the rumor that short sales are going to get easier soon true? Uh, Ben's answer is, unfortunately, the best way to get short sales uh, short sale offers to the lender is fax. Some of the lenders will allow you to email the offer, but once the file has been assigned to a rep... Only once the file has been assigned to a representative. With the president and Congress pushing for short sales, we all hope the process will get easier pretty soon. It's Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week, 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call. You can also send us an email by going to askvina.com. We'll be back with your questions and our answers right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. It's the last Wednesday of the month, and that makes it question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call with any question that you have, whether it be about buying property, selling properties, wholesaling, retailing, lease options, land contracts, rentals, screening tenants, managing properties, finding money, whatever you want to talk about. 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or send us an email at askvina.com. A uh, question from Avi, who says, I've been downloading your podcast for a long time now, but it seems to have stopped. Are you off the air? Well, um, obviously not, Avi. Uh, or has the podcast moved? Uh, it, it has sort of moved. You can go to realliferealestateradio.com and uh, the feed is there. there. There's also an older feed that did stop like in November or December, uh, but then the new one is, is up there and it's, I believe, under careers or business instead of careers or something like that so it's uh can be a little bit of a challenge to find if you're looking for it on itunes but it is still there we are still here um let's see other questions from askvina.com uh anera says i thought ohio was not a tax lien state yet if you look at some of the hamilton county auditor records they show that a tax lien was sold on a property so what does this really mean? Can you buy tax liens in Hamilton County? And if so, what do you actually, quote, get? Well, uh, Anera, up until about a year and a half, two years ago, 
the counties within Ohio had the right to sell tax liens, but they did not sell tax liens. What they sold instead was tax deeds. And that means that when you went to the uh, tax sale, which was held on properties where the property taxes had gotten significantly in arrears, what you bought was the property. You actually got a deed, just like if it was a foreclosure sale. Uh, a couple of years back, and I, I would assume that this was a result of uh, the auditor uh, collecting a whole lot less taxes thanks to the big foreclosure problem, uh, the county started auctioning off tax liens. They appear to be doing it only in large blocks, unlike some other states where you can go in and you can bid on a particular tax lien on a particular property. Uh, our county seems to be auctioning off gigantic blocks of tax liens so you can't like go in and just get one property so it's still working a whole lot different than it does in states like florida and texas and arizona and some of the very famous tax lien states where you can in fact buy the lien against one property uh, when you buy a tax lien by the way what you're buying is the debt against the property which means that uh, let, let's say that there's two thousand dollars worth of back taxes due and uh, for two thousand dollars you buy the right to collect those back taxes along with an interest rate that is generally guaranteed by the state depending on what state you're in they range from seven or eight percent up to as much as 24 percent in some states uh, many tax lien investors buy those properties for the return and are careful about which properties they're buying tax liens against because if the if the uh, lien is still not paid after a certain period of time, generally around two years, you can foreclose against the property as the lien holder and you are in first position. So that's pretty cool if you are uh, looking for an investment for uh, the medium term, you know, medium to short term. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call with your questions. Running out of questions here via email. Uh, so if you have one, please send it to us ASAP by going to askvina.com. You can also choose to uh, send it to askvina at gmail.com if you're in your car or something and cannot... Uh, get the uh, website on your phone, but you can email on your phone. That's askvina at gmail.com or 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Let's see, some older questions here. Stephen Cincinnati says, Real Life Real Estate is a great resource. Thank you for sharing so much with all of us. You're very welcome, Steve. Um, I ha- uh, This is from Karen in Charlotte, North Carolina. She says, uh, I have a question about using a land trust to buy a bank-owned property. I have used trusts for subject to using the property address as the trust in order to sell it to an end buyer. But since the property is owned by a bank, how is the trust set up? For example, the name. I don't imagine it would be using the property address and the name. I know I would be trustee and the end buyer would be the beneficiary, but that is all I understand. Uh, the, the the question for those of you who don't understand it is that a land trust, which is simply a, a trust that holds property, is often given a name. For instance, if it's holding the property at 123 Easy Street, someone might name it the 123 Easy Street Land Trust. Uh, you can name it anything you want. You can name it Fred, but it's, it's pr- fairly common to name the trust after the address of the property just for privacy reasons. In most states, though, 
the trust does not the uh, property does not have to be deeded to the trust it can be deeded, be deeded to the trustee so for instance karen your trust might say just karen charlotte trustee as opposed to the 123 easy street trust it is um going to be confusing to the lender if you if a trust with the address of the property offers to buy the property because they already don't understand land trusts therefore it's going to be a little difficult for them to get why it is they are getting a um a an offer from a trust that of course doesn't exist because they currently own the property it's real life real estate investing it's question and answer week 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call with your questions or you can send them via email at askvina at gmail.com or to uh by or by going to our website at askvina.com while you're at that website you can choose to opt into our weekly e-letter which is a e-letter that goes out every Tuesday or Wednesday telling you all about the upcoming real life real estate investing program what the topic is who the guest is and also of course of how you can listen gives you the links to listen man we are six fans away from a thousand on realliferealestateradio.com we just need six more people to go there and fan us up and we'll have a thousand fans on real life real estate radio.com 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call with your questions or send it to askvina at gmail.com listening for the first time paul in thornton colorado says also do you ever do a le- a longer lease option so that people have a longer chance to have a history of paying on time? Um, okay, Paul, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. Let me do a little background on lease options. Uh, lease option is, of course, a way of of renting a house for the time being with an agreement to sell it to your tenant later. And in the past, it was very typical for a lease option agreement to be one year. So the agreement is the tenant lives here and pays me rent for one year. And at the end of that year, he goes and finds financing and buys the property from me. The reason that that was very typical, uh, say five years ago, was because the subprime financing market was so strong that it was entirely possible for anyone who could even sort of keep a job and keep their credit a little bit clean for a year to get financing. Those days are kind of gone. Those fog a mirror, get a loan days are are over with for the foreseeable future. And the current best choice for most of your lease option buyers is going to be something like an FHA first time home buyers loan. The credit requirements on those loans are significantly more stringent than they were on subprime loans, although still not as stringent as some other loans that first-time home buyers could get. And the general thinking is that if you're not writing lease options for two to three years at this point, you're really not giving your buyer a significant chance of actually getting his credit cleaned up and being able to um, buy the property 
give them a year, chances are they're not going to be able to buy it. And that's a failure on both of your parts. I mean, you didn't get to sell the house and they didn't get to buy the house. So that's not good. So two to three year lease options, very, very common right now. I'm even seeing people writing them for as long as five years because there are some potential buyers out there who are nervous that the market's going to continue to fall forever and ever and ever and they want a longer option period. The important thing, of course, is that you buy and finance a deal in such a way that you you have that period of time to sell them to sell it and that of course it cash flows in the meantime uh, appreciate your question Paul which came via askvina at gmail.com if you have a question you can send it in exactly the same way Terrence in Pittsburgh says I am a real estate agent here in Pittsburgh I've put a couple of a couple of properties under contract in my entity's name that were not assignable. In other words, he had it, he'd signed it Terrence for Terrence's LLC. In the midst of negotiation, I find, found buyers for the properties and asked the agent for the bank to allow me to switch the name on it, and they allowed me to do it. Um, well, that that's good. I've I've heard a lot of complaints uh, recently about banks not wanting to even let you assign contracts between your own entities or from your entity to yourself or vice versa, uh, which is a real problem if you're planning on financing conventionally because uh, Fannie Mae, of course, won't make loans to LLCs. So if you sign the bottom of that purchase contract to the bank, Terrence's LLC, and then you went to get financing, uh, that can be very problematic because you can't get the financing because it's in the wrong name and then the bank won't switch the name. So you got to think about what it is that your that your in strategy is before you sign the contracts particularly on these bank owned properties it's real life real estate investing it's question and answer week 7729658 or 8777729658 it's real life real estate investing here on WMKV, 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. I've received three emails now telling me that the podcasts are only updated to the 18th of February. And that I cannot explain to you because I have turned them all over to uh, the guy who's in charge of putting those up. And I don't know where they are, but trust me, I will get on it. Uh, we will get you updated through the most recent program which is sitting right here in front of me so um yeah we will take care of that if you are not seeing the podcasts completely up to date at this point but there are about a hundred going backwards so realliferealestateradio.com you can send us an email with your question for question and answer week at askvina at gmail.com 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 is the number to call with any questions that you have, whether it be about buying real estate, selling real estate, financing real estate, whatever it might be. We'd really appreciate your questions here on Question and Answer Week. It's a little hard to make a show when there are no questions and I'm just repeating the phone number over and over again. Uh, Frank from Waretown, New Jersey says, I am a huge fan of yours, but I can't afford to buy a lot of education yet because I'm just starting out. I wanted to know what I could use as a contingency that would give me two weeks to market my property to wholesale buyers. 
I also wanted to know once I pass that contingency date, am I legally obligated to buy that home? Thanks in advance. Well, Frank, the contingency that would normally be used for that purpose would be something like an inspection contingency or a financing contingency or a partner approval contingency. Um, really the first and the last more so than the middle one, because the middle one usually comes with a bunch of you have to apply and you have to make a concerted effort to get the financing and so on. So usually partner approval or a uh, an inspection contingency. Are you legally obligated to buy the home after the contingency time has passed? Yes and no. It sort of depends a little bit on what your contract says, because uh, if you look carefully, you may find that the contract that you're using has what's called a liquidated damages clause that says even if you get past that contingency time, the most that the seller can do to you if you don't buy the property is keep your earnest money. Other contracts I have seen have uh, every remedy available to law by the seller, which means if he should choose to do so, he could sue you for damages. That can't necessarily force you to buy the house, but if he can prove in court that he had actual financial damages in regards to your purchase that didn't go through, um, yeah, he can potentially sue you for damages. So those liquidated damages clause are a good thing. Brian in Toledo just sent an email via the askvina.com website and asks for some specific recommendations on some specific speakers courses that I can't really give here because it is uh, public radio and all and we don't sit here and endorse things. Uh, Let me see if there's something I can pull out of this that I can actually answer. He says, I have a question about private money. Uh, We just had a particular person speak at our real estate association and I've also heard someone else speak about private lenders. Do you have any recommendations or any suggestions? Speaker number one seems to have all the paperwork, which is a plus. Uh, And yes, speaker number one does, in fact, have all the paperwork, which is a big plus. Uh, Really, if you're you're looking to purchase a package regarding private lending that, that teaches you how to market for private lenders and put the deals together and so on, the main thing that I would say that you really need to look for is does the course cover the laws in your state? Because private lending and private borrowing are governed by state law. And it's very, very important that you stay within the rules uh, about that state law. And uh, it is, um, yeah, it's important that if you're going to depend on a course to tell you what to do, that that course explains to you what the laws are in your state about advertising and any registration that might be necessary and so on. Uh, Speaking of which, if you're interested in private lending and private borrowing, you may want to make sure that you stay tuned next week because we've got a special announcement that we're going to make about a um, seminar that is going to be held locally for private lenders. So uh, yeah, if that is is up your alley. It's something that you want to hear about. Do not miss next week's program. Uh, Let's see. Steve from Westchester, Ohio says, what are the pros and cons of collecting rent payments versus having them mailed each month? If mailing, do you provide monthly invoices and or envelopes? Do you include any additional notes, et cetera, to them? Steve, I got to tell you, there is no way in which I would ever recommend that anybody collect their rents in person ever. 
the only kinds of properties where that is even sort of necessary is in very low income properties where it's very difficult for the folks to get stamps or to uh, we we there was a, a very low income property that I used to manage in downtown Cincinnati where we tried providing stamped envelopes and what we found was that the tenants used them to pay all of their bills in the first month and then didn't have the other 11 months worth of envelopes to send to us and the reason I know that is because the envelopes were barcoded and so their electric bill their water bill etc was coming to me because they didn't understand that it's, the post office doesn't read the address, they read the barcode. So, the, and the only reason that that was necessary was because of, of the type of property that it was. Do not get your, hab, your, your tenants into the habit of expecting you to pick up the rent because this is what happens if you do. You come by on the first of the month and they say, well, actually tomorrow's Friday and that's when I get paid. So come back tomorrow and you go back tomorrow and they're not there. And then you go back again on Saturday and now you've made a trip for what it would have taken your tenant 10 seconds to fold up, put it in an envelope, lick and send to you. It's just, it's just not a good, it's not a good habit. You know, other companies don't collect their bills in person. So if you're going to be a real professional company, perhaps you shouldn't collect your bills in person. And once you have started doing that, it is really hard to convince the tenants to put the rent in the mail. They expect you to pick it up forever and at their convenience. And yes, we do send our tenants monthly invoices, uh, around the 25th of the month to remind them that their rent is coming due to tell them exactly what they owe, which may of course change from month to month, depending on did they have a late fee from last month that they didn't pay? Um, is there an unpaid water bill, etc.? And we do put note, notes in them from time to time about various things like check your smoke detector batteries and, you know, Hey, it's fall. You might want to knock the leaves out of your gutters or let us know if that needs to be done. Uh, things like that. The folks who are really, really good at this uh, send newsletters out to their tenants every month about best ways to maintain your rental property and get help if you need it and so on. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or askvina at gmail.com are the ways to contact us today with questions. We only have question and answer week once a month. So if you are uh, ready to to get started in real estate or maybe you've been in it for a while and you have something you need to ask, give us a call, 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. And going back to the emails, which seems to be the number one preferred way today to ask questions. Um, we got a, one from Cindy in Cupertino, California, Cupertino, California. She says, thanks for the very informative show. I enjoy it very much. Is there a real estate investors association in San Jose? Cindy, there is a nonprofit national real estate investors association that keeps pretty good track of where the various RIA groups and landlording groups and so on are all around the country. It's the national real estate investors association and their website is nationalria.com. That's national reia.com if you'd like to check there. I'm not specifically aware of a group in San Diego, but I would be very surprised if in a city of that size and with a market that is that active that it was there would not be such an organization, at least one, probably more than one, there in San Diego. 
772-9658 or 877-772-9658 are the numbers to call with your questions about real estate investing or send us an email at askvina.com uh, or at askvina at gmail.com. Either one would work just peachy. Uh, David from Cincinnati has a question about establishing business credit. This is a very hot topic in the real estate world right now, how to uh, have your credit cards and, and lines of credit and so on be in the name of your company without your personal signature, as opposed to the way most people do it, which is they get themselves a credit card and it's got their name and their social security number attached to the account. And then they run off and uh, go spend money on it. And of course, if the business fails, it's their personal credit that suffers. And that's a really good question, Dave, because most of what I have seen regarding that kind of credit for small businesses tells me that it is very, very difficult to establish uh, business credit, particularly in a short period of time. In the future, we will have a guest here on Real Life Real Estate to talk about establishing business credit as opposed to uh, having your personal credit. But of course, the one, the one really big thing that you borrow in real estate is what now? It's mortgages. And Mortgages, particularly of the conventional variety, are always going to require a personal signature from you. They are never going to be under your company's taxpayer identification number. They are always going to be under your social security number. So uh, real estate's a little bit of a strange business that way. And until you get to the point where you can have, uh, you have enough assets that you can have business lines of credit, that's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, Scott in St. Paul sent us an email at the askvina.com website. Unfortunately, Scott, that email is completely blank. So perhaps putting a question there in the question line might uh, help me to know how it is that I can help you. Susan in Urbana, Illinois says, uh, today I listened to your podcast dated January 31st, 2008. Yeah, we do have some podcasts going way back there. You talked about why you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket, referring to creating just one LLC to keep your properties in. Illinois has recently allowed series LLCs where you can parcel up different assets and keep them separate from your other assets. I have heard some legal experts say that series LLCs haven't been tried and tested into the court, so they advise against it. But others say if your state is series LLC friendly and provides the option, then there will not be many issues in keeping assets separate, except perhaps from a loan perspective. What are your thoughts on series LLCs in general? Well, Susan, I assume that what you're talking about is this idea that you can have multiple, multiple, multiple limited liability companies set up, which actually is an easy thing to do. The state will allow you to pay them to give you permission to set up as many LLCs as you want to. What most real estate investors do is they set up three or four, you know, and put four or five properties a piece in them and say, you know, I've got, got my little company separated here so that something bad happens in one of them. It won't affect the other ones. But some of the current thinking has been, well, if you're going to do that, why not just put each house in its own separate LLC? And the answer has always been that it's too many tax identification numbers, too many bank accounts, too many tax returns to file. And so what some folks have been recommending and that Illinois has apparently given the nod to now is the idea that you would have 
multiple, multiple LLCs with one other LLC that was managing them all, taking in the money, sending it back out so only one bank account was basically filing the tax return, the, a single tax return on the income and losses from all of the different LLCs. You know what, Susan, to, to, to my mind, and I'm not a legal expert, I'm not an attorney, um, that might be a little bit of overkill because although I am not a legal expert or an attorney, I know that if I wanted to sue you for something and uh, you had this set up with all these different multiple LLCs, the argument that I would try to make or try and get my attorney to make is that you clearly did not do that for any business reason. You did it sheerly for asset protection reasons, sheerly to avoid creditors like myself and that therefore they should all be disallowed plus the multiple multiple LLCs means that the chances of you messing up something in the paperwork not doing your yearly your annual meeting for uh, one or more of them and thus shooting yourself in the foot in the way of the asset protection issues is much much higher so uh, until somebody really convinces me otherwise I'm gonna say keep doing things the way we have been doing them you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658. Just about 10 minutes left in the show for you to ask any question that you have about real estate investing or go to askvina.com, send us an email. Hey kids, it's Mr. Drew. I wanted to invite you to go to realliferealestate.com and check out all the great information about real estate investing and the news about upcoming events. Go ahead and do that. I'll know if you don't. I'm watching you right now. It's real life, real estate investing on WMKV. It's question and answer week. It always is on the last Wednesday of the month. And if you have a question, you need to give us a call here pretty quickly at 772-9658 or 877-772-9658 or send your question via email at askvina at gmail.com. Uh, just got a message from the official smart boy of real life real estate investing saying that if you're trying to listen to the streaming audio via Firefox, it's not being real cooperative with the WMKVFM.org site that uh, Internet Explorer appears to work. But um, of course, I don't know why I'm not announcing that because if you're trying to use Firefox and you can't get through, you can't hear me saying it, can you? But in any case, uh, maybe you'll hear it on the podcast later on. I'm also getting conflicting reports via email about the podcast. I just got one from Steve that said that they are updated through May 13th, 2009. I don't know how to get any more updated than that, ladies and gentlemen. So I don't know if that just happened or if we've got different feeds going on in different places or what. But again... Don't worry, we'll get it straightened out. Uh, let's go ahead and go to the phones and talk to Ron, who is calling from Cincinnati on line one. Ron, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Thank you, Vina. Um, I have a house that is boarded up with almost uh, no mortgage left on it. Um, I, I'm paying taxes and I'm paying uh, insurance because the insurance company doesn't know it's boarded up. And I kind of need to know what I should do or what your advice is that I would do at this time. Well, Ron, I'm assuming that it's not sitting there boarded up because it's making you a bunch of money and it's something you're like, you have like all the time and energy and money in the world to go fix up. 
it's not worth it, and it's in a war zone. <laughs> okay. Uh, then my my advice to you is going to be the advice I give to everybody that I run into in this situation, because there are always, uh, I, I talk to two or three people a week uh, around the country who are in a situation like that, where the, the value of their property has dropped to the point where it's literally not worth fixing up. And that is try to sell it. And if you can't sell it, donate it. Because the, the problem, of course, is that the uh, the city will continue to harass you with building order complaints, etc. Uh, if, if it's in the city of Cincinnati, they're going to be wanting you to pay for a vacant building maintenance license, which is incredibly expensive. I've already know about that. Yeah, and, and, and that, that, that about doubles every year, by the way, that you hold it vacant. And if you don't buy it, they will start hauling you into court. And as you said, it's just not worth it. So, um, you know, trying to sell it for just a few thousand dollars to someone who maybe is going to go in there with some elbow grease and get it done themselves and make it into a, a low-income rental or donate, donating it to a nonprofit organization like Habitat for Humanity or somebody, somebody of that nature uh, is going to be the way to go. That's a good idea. Very good. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. You, you are very welcome, Ron, and I'm, I'm sorry about your situation, but trust me, there are a lot of people in it right now. <laughs> okay. I enjoy your program very much. Thank you, Thank Ron. You. I appreciate Bye. it. Uh, Scott in St. Paul did manage to get the question absolutely into uh, the asvina.com forum. Uh, he says, options for renovating and holding property have changed since credit tightened or so I've heard. Is it possible now to buy at 70 cents on the dollar, repair the property, refinance it at 80%, on the, uh, 80 cents on the dollar, and pull money out thereby ending up with a nice rental money to pay off acquisition, rehab, holding costs, and some extra money? Uh, well, Scott, the answer to that question is yes, no, and maybe. Okay. First of all, it is possible right now to buy properties at a whole lot less than 70 cents on the dollar. And And when we talk about, by the way, those of you who might be new listeners, when we talk about buying properties at 70 cents on the dollar, that's shorthand for we want to pay 70% of the fixed up value less the repair and holding costs. So if a, if a house is worth 100000 fixed up, but it needs twenty to fix it, we're not paying 70, we're paying 50, or a, bit, a little bit less than 50 to account for holding costs. And with the market is the way the market the way it is right now, 45% of all of the home sales in April were distressed sales of some sort. It is very possible to pick up properties in especially rental neighborhoods for 60 cents on the dollar of after repaired value, less repairs, less holding costs. Now, the problem is part two of this theoretical question, which is, can I refinance it and pull out cash? The 80% cash out refinance that was very widely available four or five years ago uh, is rare as hen's teeth right now, Scott. The highest loan to value ratio that I'm seeing banks wanting to do for cash out refinances is about 70 cents on the dollar, which works really well if you paid 60 cents on the dollar. However, uh, there's another thing that's going on that's kind of strange. And I'm going to I'm going to walk carefully when I tell you this, because I, I'm, I'm not out to ins insult an entire uh, industry. 
But appraisers are under an enormous amount of pressure to bring in appraisals that are very, very conservative. So you you got you got two pieces of the puzzle here, all right, Scott. You think the house is worth a hundred thousand fixed up. You think you can prove the house is worth a hundred thousand fixed up, and now it's fixed up. Theoretically, you should be able to borrow seventy thousand dollars on that property. And if it appraises for a hundred thousand dollars, you will be able to borrow seventy seventy thousand dollars on the property, even if you only have sixty in it. So that's the good news. The bad news is it's probably not going to appraise for $100,000. I've talked to appraiser after appraiser about this, and what they're saying is that they they are just so under the gun to bring in their appraisals conservatively, particularly in a situation where you paid a low, low price for property and are now trying to refinance it a year or two later for a significantly higher price, that they are going to go conservative on the appraisal. So if the houses could be worth somewhere between 95 and 100, your appraisal is going to come in at 95 and you're only going to be able to borrow 70% of that. And that's only if you have really good credit because conventional loans are um, getting to the point where they are more and more difficult to get. And one of the main reasons for that is that the credit score required to get them is going up and up and up and up and up. So uh, yes, yeah, Scott, the whole, the whole business of buying cheap, refinancing at 80 cents on the dollar, taking the cash out to live on or reinvest is kind of not working real well right, right now, which is funny because you know, an 80 cents on the dollar loan seems to me like a really safe loan. It seems to me like a bank that had to take back a fixed up property that they only had 80 cents on the dollar in would be in a pretty good position. But uh, the pendulum has swung way, way, way far in the other direction because of all the bad loans that were made in the past. So will we see the rebirth of the 80% cash out loan? I think so. And I think that'll be in the next few years. But right now, uh, very, very, very difficult to find. So uh, appreciate your question, Scott. Also have one from Michelle in Cincinnati who says, I was listening to the podcast on a show about a lady who, uh, let's see, she had a question about not having any money to buy property and having bad credit, but she wanted to know what she could do to start investing. You told her she could start wholesaling properties to get herself out of the mess. I did not get all of what you said on how to do the wholesaling, meaning the steps of how to do it. Could you please tell me how to wholesale properties? Because I have the same situation that she had. Uh, well, Michelle, I mean, we could we could and have spent entire shows on wholesaling properties. And there are, gosh, entire courses and four day long seminars on the topic of wholesaling properties. But I will give you the basic sketch because um, it's a it is a very good uh, way of getting started in real estate, adding cash to your business and so on. Uh, wholesaling is basically the business of putting properties under contract and then selling the contracts. Uh, you look for particular kinds of properties that other real estate investors want because it's real estate investors that you're going to be selling to. You put them under prop- you put them under contract at very low prices so that you can make, and it depends on what part of the country you're in, but you can make $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 on the sale and then the investor can still go fix it up and make lots of money as well. Uh, there are 
certain sets of contracts that you need in order to do this. There are certain kinds of properties and neighborhoods that you're going to be interested in uh, making offers in because you can't wholesale properties in every neighborhood and every price range. Uh, you need to have a good buyer's list. And of course, a good way to get a good buyer's list is to join your local real estate investors association. But um, it's uh, just really not something we can describe here in the last two minutes of the show, but it's something that probably bears some further looking into by you because it does require basically no credit whatsoever since you're never buying a property and it requires uh, very minimal cash investment, particularly compared to the guy who's buying from you and putting all this money into the property. Wow, the end of another question and answer week. Appreciate all of your emails, calls, and questions. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, and we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.